to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. I'm going to tell you something, people. I remember years ago, my older brother would drive me to 7-Eleven to get snacks in his white Camaro. And he would play this 8-track. And it was of the Cars. It was their first album. And I'd heard him a little bit on WMMR in Philadelphia. But I loved them. And the music has stayed with me. And my guest is part of the Cars. He's also... Playing the music of the cars with Eddie Japan at uh, City Winery in Philly on November 4th. And he's a, I guess it's a visual artist because I've been seeing a lot of cool stuff with his cats. And my guest is Greg Hawks. How you doing, Greg? Good, good. How you doing? I'm doing well. I, I want to talk about Eddie Japan. I want to talk about the cars. But I want to start off, tell me about Betty Cooper and Captain Rufus. Okay. <laughs> well, Captain Rufus is our cat. And uh, uh, he, he just turned like a year old. We're not exactly sure when, but he came from a family of barn cats in Maine. And his his full his full moniker is Captain Rufus Burnham Plummer, which is one of my wife's ancestors who also came from Maine. Uh, and Betty Cooper is our daughter's cat, and. Uh, and so I've been playing around recently with a couple of uh, artificial intelligence art programs. And uh, that's, that's sort of what got spurred, spurred me on. I've I, been posting on Facebook this whole like series of their adventures. And I've, I've been using the, the AI art a couple of AI art apps to do like the backgrounds and settings. And then I have other pictures of the cats that I sort of photo collage, you know, onto the backgrounds. And, and mainly they're, they're sort of adventures, take them around the world uh, in search of, of tasty treats. <laughs> I know I saw, I saw the ones with the King crab and the salmon. And, uh, but now, now this isn't your first venture into visual arts. You you had you and your wife, I believe, had a uh, display uh, somewhere up in where you're from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've been working. Well, I I've had an interest in. I mean, to tell you the truth, when back when I was in high school, I was really sort of debating on whether to go to art school or music school afterwards. And uh, music won out, uh, but uh, but I've always had an interest in art, and I've always sort of done little sketches and kind of cart mainly kind of cartoony little drawings, and uh, and and then with you know iPhone and stuff, I just got into the whole sort of digital camera art of you know, superimposing images onto, you know, other backgrounds and combining images. Just photo collage, basically. Yeah. But but the Cats series is, is particularly ridiculous. Oh, it's great. It's great. It's fun. That's what it's, it's fun. That's what, that's what yeah. music and art should be. It should be fun. No pretense. Yeah. Just have fun. Look at it. Now, you said you were in high school, you were deciding, you know, between art and music. When did you start getting into music? Did you start playing instruments at a really young age, or, or when did this love I of music start? Started, I, I, think, I think I started piano lessons maybe when I was in second grade and uh, started playing clarinet in school band around 
fifth grade. But it really wasn't until, well, I was 11 when, when I first heard the Beatles in 1964. And it was like, a, you know, one of those light bulbs coming on moments. I was like, wow. And I had just never heard music like that. And it just really affected me. And so sort of from that day on, it was like, wow, that's what I want to do. Now, how did you choose Berkeley? And I know you went there to play flute and composition? Yeah, I, I majored in arranging and composition. And, and flute was actually, I intended it to be my major instrument. But when I got there, really, uh, they didn't really have flute majors. They had saxophone majors who doubled on flute. So that's what, sort of what I became. And I, and I had played saxophone phone some before I had an alto sax and so I it did kind of force me into uh, trying to get a little better at saxophone but but also when I was there it was the composition that really got me focused again on, on keyboards and and the piano and and I was just it just seemed to me the to make the most sense of if you uh you know, it just seemed to be the perfect tool to write music because all the notes are just, you know, laid out there in front of you. Well, you know, we, we think of you with the cars because uh, you, you had a long, great career with them. But I read that you played with Martin Mull. How did that, Martin Mull's like a comic genius. So, I mean, how, how did, I mean, any, I, I do stand-up comedy and I did it for a long time. And, and we always remember the old Martin Mull and, and you'd watch him on TV and he was just so damn funny. But how... Oh. How did that happen? And what is it like? I mean, you're a kid in Berkeley. Now you're going and you're doing basically, was the show like comedy sketches? What was it like when you were touring with Martin? Yeah, it was. It was, I was actually in an earlier band with Rick and Ben from the Cars. Uh, it was a band called Richard and the Rabbits. And uh, we were playing at this place out in Hudson, Massachusetts, out in the suburbs of Boston. And... Uh, I got to know this one other guy who lived right near there, and and coincidentally enough, his his name was Richard Edelman, and he was the drummer for Martin for Martin Mull. Uh, and Martin at the time had a trio. Uh, it was Martin, Eddie Wise on piano, Richard uh, on drums, and then they had a bass player. So Martin wanted to was going to do a uh, a show at uh, in Central Park, an outdoor show in New York and Central Park. So we wanted to expand the band a little. And so their their drummer Richard uh recommended me for the job because he knew knew me and we had gotten together and just sort of, you know, jammed casually a couple of times with a couple other people. So he's he was my connection for that. And then that it, it, as it turned out, it, you know, it was me and another guy Brian Cummings who uh, were added to the band. And Brian also played saxophone and guitar. And I I actually, when I was in Martin's band, uh, I was hired mainly as a woodwind player. I played saxophone, clarinet, flute, uh, and then a few sort of novelty instruments. I played harmonica on a song. Uh, I played little glockenspiel on, on hors d'oeuvres, which had that French... It had like oh you know it's it's so hard to say au revoir let's just say hors d'oeuvres, so it had that French thing going. So I played these little you know bells, and uh, but Martin was such a funny guy. Uh, 
uh, he, he was just one of those guys that was like always on. So like, you know, if you're in the dressing room, the TV would be on. One of his favorite shows was Hollywood Squares. And uh, he would like talk to the TV, you know. So when the questions came up, Martin had, you know, Martin had his answers, you know, and he was always so quick. And and uh, then so so that I was in his band for a year. It was the year before the cars got together. And uh, at the time, Martin was living in New York, but sort of at the end of that time era, he got a divorce. He decided to move to Los Angeles to pursue his acting career. So he let the band go and then sort of within six months uh, got a job on uh, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, uh, which led to his own spinoff series, which was Fernwood Tonight. Love those tonight. shows. Love those shows. Yeah. I remember, Mary yeah. Hartman, Mary Hartman. I still, like, in my ear, my dad loved those shows. And it was so funny because it wasn't, my dad was very conservative. And it wasn't, I, I never understood how, how he got that. Like, my parents would watch it. And I'm, you know, from, you know, middle class New Jersey. And, and it was, they just, people who remember those shows go, Looking back, they were so genius, but I think back then a lot of people just thought they were a little off kilter. They didn't really get it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, it, it's funny. It was a, a Norman Lear produced that show. The same guy who did All in the Family and uh, boy, uh, so many TV sitcoms. I didn't. Did he do Mary Tyler Moore's show? Was that a Norman Lear? No, he did. Show? He did All uh, All in the Family, Good Times, Maud. He did a yeah, bunch. Yeah, Okay, yeah. So, so he he really liked Martin, and uh, but yeah, the the show with Martin, you know, he he wrote these like comedy songs basically, and the show was in between the songs. He would do these little comedy bits that you know would sort of lead into the next song, and uh, so it was fascinating for me because I I. It was the first time, instead of just being like a guy in a band, I really felt like, wow, this is show business. You know, it's it's like comedy, music, and and you know the whole the whole uh, the whole business. So so you get Martin leaves. So you're a musician and you want to work. So then, how do the Cars end up coming to be? Because you said you played earlier with uh, Rick and Ben. So how did, yeah. how did you guys become the Cars, and how did you come up with the name, the Cars? Well, David, our David Robinson, our drummer, is the one that came up with the name, the Cars. But I think he just had it in the back of his mind, you know, sort of like, oh, that'd be a good name for a band sometime. And, and David had been in some other bands around us, and he had been in a band, The Modern Lovers, with Jonathan Richmond. Uh, who were sort of a legendary Boston band from before the Cars uh, that never really had a big success, but but they're still like sort of a legendary band. And uh, and then he was in a, another band, DMZ. And so the year that I left to Richard and the Rabbits to go play with Martin, Rick and Ben started another band, which was called Cap'n Swing, that uh, had Rick and Ben and Elliot Easton on guitar, along with you know a, a 
a few other people. And so that band kind of was falling apart. Rick and Ben were like reorganizing with Elliot to become the cars. And, and I remember, I remember Rick and Ben coming over to kind of, uh, uh, what is it? sell me on the ideas of, oh you should you know you should join our band and you know and and uh so it was good timing i you know my thing with martin had just you know had finished i was kind of you know looking for something to do anyway and uh so they already had the name and and i i guess i was actually the last one to join uh so it would have been, I think my first show was like in February of 1977. What was like the Boston music scene like at that time? Because you guys had a different sound. What, I mean, was it, you know, you think 77, because, you know, I graduated high school in 82. So I remember MTV and I remember that sound. And as I said, my older brother played the cars, but by that time they had made the radio, the police had made Philly radio, Joe Jackson. So the music landscape was changing, but you guys were sort of on the forefront of that. So what was the music scene like in Boston when, when you guys started performing and and how did people react to you? Because it's, it was a different sound. Yeah. Uh, it's funny when, there was it, there, there was a definite like stylistic change from the bands that Rick and Ben had had previous to the Cars. It seemed like with the Cars, all of a sudden, it just the music just seemed more stripped down, a little heavier, you know, a little more straight ahead rock stuff, more. Uh, 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 just the arrangements were simpler also also rick's vocal style was sort of the first time that he had that sort of like stylized almost i think of like a buddy holly sort of uh almost 50s with his you know uh oh uh oh the kind of herky jerky kind of quirky you know sort of vocal delivery uh which which seemed to be like a new thing for the cars also there was an interest i mean in every other band i've been in there was it was sort of what you wore on stage is just what you showed up in you know and but with the cars it was sort of a definite idea to you know sort of focus and and look like we all played in the same band and so that first i mean our first sort of really idea was okay everybody just wear black and white we'll start with that you know and then you know and and then you know even that helped uh you know because because it did make a difference uh from you know i guess before i guess it was it was more like just sort of like you know hippie look you know people would just you know wear jeans or whatever and 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 so it just seemed like there was more of an attempt uh to make some, it was that me to make something stylized uh so so you're well it's funny because it's, it's like what they say now it's branding i mean you guys were creating a brand 
And you did. Yeah. You're right, because you always looked sharp. And that's the truth. You know, you sit there, and that's more as you guys. And then 80s band came out. Fashion was a very part of it, because we we wanted to see that, because we weren't our parents. We weren't the long hair. We wanted to okay. see that. And you guys are really on top of that. Now, as you're playing around Boston, how do you end up getting a record deal? Because, mm. you know, you think it's Boston, but a lot of times people think we have to go to New York, we have to L.A. But how did you guys get the record deal? Yeah, well, we... We were very lucky. We had we'd recorded a bunch of songs, uh, demos of these songs, and most of the songs ended up being on the album. Uh, but we did it live to two-track, and so we had a tape of Just What I Needed was actually the first one. Uh, we also had, I think, You're All I've Got Tonight. Uh, but there was a radio station and a DJ, Max Ann Satori, who had seen Captain Swing, Rick Rick and Ben's band, just previous to the Cars. She liked them. Uh, and so Rick gave her a copy of the demo tape, and she started playing it on the air uh, on her show. And she had the afternoon, whatever it was, you know, noon to four or two to six, whatever that late afternoon was. And uh, she started playing it every day, and then it became like a top, phone request item people were calling up oh i want to hear that song by the cars and it wasn't a record yet and then they uh they started reporting it like on the trades you know because they have to make lists of all the songs radio stations had had to make lists of all the songs and so as they would list the songs that you know were per you know currently in you know top rotation there would be you know just what i needed the cars and then in parentheses it just said demo and so that caught the attention of uh a couple of record companies and and uh like who are these guys you know they, they you know they're not even signed yet and then also it, it there was a club in boston called the rat and it seems like that's where all that was sort of the center of the Boston music scene. Uh, the first time the police came, they played at the Rat. I saw, I saw, I saw Talking Heads play there uh, when they were still a trio. Uh, Jerry Harrison hadn't joined the band yet. And, uh, oh, and, as, as, and speaking of Small World, Jerry Harrison had also been in that band, The Modern Lovers, with David Robinson, our drummer. Uh, and... So uh, there were a lot of that's where that's where you would play if you were a band in Boston that was doing like original material. Uh, and so we got once the combination of building up a following there, along with the radio airplay, we by the end of the summer of 77, uh, we started like selling out the rat. We'd play multiple nights, you know, instead of just one night, we, we'd be there Friday and Saturday. And then it, eventually it got up to like four nights in a row. And people would be, there would be lines outside the door, uh, which, you know, was pretty unbelievable. So we had this kind of local momentum early on. 
Now, you got the now when you go into the studio to record the album, you said, you know, you had a lot of the songs already recorded. What was the process? Because I know, you know, on the albums it says everything was written by Rick, but I know you co-wrote, you know, Moving in Stereo, and you add the keyboard licks, and you're, you know, you're known as someone who was innovative in adding keyboard. I mean, you know, when you look back to that music, you're on the forefront. I mean, and if you don't know that, you probably do know that, but people go, oh yeah, Greg Hawks. But what was it like when you were creating the music? Because... Would would Rick like write the song and then then you would add the keyboard? I mean, how how did you how was the process for you guys? Yeah, Rick would present songs to the band. Usually, he would either just play it live on his guitar and sing, and and that that was basically the way he wrote. Uh, or he or he would play us a cassette. Uh, that he had done like the night before or something, but, but still it was basically him playing guitar and maybe a drum machine just for the beat. And then, you know, he'd be singing, you know, singing the, uh, the lyrics and everybody, I mean, you know, brought our own, you know, we worked together on the arrangements, you know, we all kind of came up with our own parts. Elliot worked on his own guitar parts I worked on my own keyboard parts, you know, everybody had ideas and brought their own, you know, talents to the, uh, to the end product, I guess. And, uh, it was sort of a matter of, of just rehearsing the songs and, and we had been playing those songs live for like a year before we went in to record. So we had them pretty well down, uh, and and so we we did the uh, we we ended up signing with Electra Records, and they they suggested Roy Thomas Baker as a producer, and and uh, he he was famous for being Queen's producer, uh, so he came to see us. I remember. At some, uh, we were playing like at a high school somewhere, and it was a really snowy night. So, you know, driving was terrible. And as a result, there, you know, there were maybe like 20 or 30 people in the audience. We were set up in a high school gym. And, and as I seem to remember, we weren't even set up on the stage. We were just sort of set up in a corner of the gym. And, and so that was, that was the the way Roy Baker came to see us, or, you know, saw us. And but you know, afterwards, you know, he he was on board right away. You know, at, you know, after our show, he says, "Oh, would you fancy coming to uh, London to record?" And you know, we're like, <laughs> "Wow, <laughs> you know, would we?" <laughs> so, tell me about moving in stereo. Uh, you know, because it's so funny, everyone. If you mention that song, people say Fast Times at Richmond High, which is right, great right. because, you know, whenever, I'm sure whenever that song, whenever that movie shows, some kid goes out and buys that track because the way now. But when you guys created that, what was your idea of what kind of song that was going to be? Because it doesn't have a single sound, but it became very popular and it got radio play. When you and Rick sat down, did he do the lyrics and you did the music or how did you guys write that song? Yeah, well, it sort of was. He had the basic guitar part and lyrics, and and we just got together and wrote all the parts, sort of 
that night we did a, I went over and we, we did like a, I don't know, probably like a four track. I don't know if he had an eight track machine yet. It was probably a four track machine, but, uh, I did the bass on it and the, all the keyboard melodies and then, you know, dun, dun, dun. so since I was there early on is, is probably one of the reasons I was able to snag a co-write credit <laughs> on that one. So, uh, so what the band, the album, the first album's popular. So how is it changing your guys' careers? Because, you know, you were playing in Boston, as you said, at that bar, and you were popular. It wasn't like you were some band that overnight success because you guys worked and had a long career. But how did you start, when that first album started hitting, how did your lives start changing? Were the tours bigger? What was going on in, in you guys? And did you get along during that time? Because it's got to be hard to all of a sudden go, holy shit. You know, we're playing in really big venues. We were just playing in Boston. Yeah. In a way, it was really one of the most exciting uh, parts of the car's history was you could almost see it get bigger, you know, week by week. Uh, you know, because since we had gotten radio airplay in Boston before, we figured at least it would probably be like a regional hit. You know, and, and so then when the, the first album came out, you know, we did get a lot of airplay in Boston and, and in New York pretty much right away. Uh, so we were lucky with that. And then we started getting a lot of uh, airplay in Los Angeles and then San Francisco, then Chicago. So it was it was more on the the two coasts. But it took about, it took almost like a year, it seemed like, for it to kind of spread, you know, throughout the whole country. And and we started, we we opened for other bands, we, we opened for a bunch of shows, opening for Foreigner. Uh, who else did we open for? Which is weird, so, because you're, the music doesn't really jive with that. Like, when you see a concert... You think, like, I saw Tommy Two-Tone open for Tom Petty one time in Philly. It, it, most people go to a concert, they want someone who's somewhat, someone like the other band. But for you guys, it's so across yeah. the road. So why did the crowds... It, it was an odd, it, it was hard fitting in sometimes with the opening acts. I mean, we, we opened for people like Bob Seger. Which you know is not really stylistically what you would think, but somehow the opportunity was there, you know. So it's like, sure, we'll do it. And and uh, yeah, one of the yeah one of the worst was we did a show uh, in in uh, Chicago, uh, which it, it it was at I think it was the Park West Club. So first we did our own. We had our own show, like like a uh, whatever, like a club showcase. You know, first time we played in Chicago, we, you know, and it went well. We it was our own show, and then the club said, you know, later tonight, what they did was they had a whole new audience after our show, and Dickie Betts was playing from the Almond Brothers. You know, total <laughs> Southern rock, and. And that was like the worst match that we'd ever had because they just didn't want to hear the cars. And, you know, when, you know, they, you know, so they were, they were having none of it. <laughs> but, yeah, that's quite the, 
<laughs> so, so as you're getting bigger, and you're getting bigger, and the album's a hit, when do you, as a band, start deciding that, you know, we have to start working on a second album? Because so many people don't understand that aren't in the industry, don't talk to people in the industry, that once you guys have to work your asses off because you're touring, you're getting up, you're doing radio, but then the record company doesn't care about that. They're, they want to see another album from you. So what right. what was your mind frame when you guys, I know, I know Rick did a lot of work, but you all worked together. What was your mind frame? Was it like halfway through the tour you said, hey man, because you know, you see your album, I mean, 78, 79, 80, 81. That's an album every year. People don't do that anymore. So yeah. So what was it like for you guys? Were you Did you feel pressure because the first album was a hit? Well, I mean, a little bit, yeah, but but not too much. I mean, for us, it was all, like, still super exciting, and, and it was still, like, you know, the upward trajectory. And, and some of the songs on Let's Go, I think, uh, were still holdovers from the material that, from the time of the first album. So some of the songs... I think arguably could have been on the first album, but, but they just weren't picked for, you know, for whatever reason. And, uh, I, cause I do remember like night spots was one that we even started doing a version on the first album, but we just never finished it. We didn't get very far with it. And by that time it was like, okay, you know, we've got enough songs, you know, we didn't, you know, uh, so that's one that was a holdover. I think you can't hold on too long uh, from there. And and then Rick's, Rick's one of those guys, as a writer, he will, uh, he works in, he always worked in spurts. Like uh, he would sort of, there would be a week or two where you wouldn't hear much from him and then he'd come back or or you'd see him you know at rehearsal and, he'd, and then he would have like 10 new songs <laughs> and 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 it was always like that it's not like oh here's a new one i did or here's you know and two weeks later here's another one he would always you know write in spurts and he was you know writing batches of you know six or seven songs always at a time and uh, so it, it was, it, it was, you know, for Candy, uh, yeah, for Candio, it, it was, I think we felt like, you know, we, we had a pretty good choice of material and, and we were still working with Roy and this time instead of London, we went to Los Angeles, uh, Cherokee Studios, which was also, you know, exciting you know it's like and, and, and you know as as exciting as london was you know this was like a, a whole new place for me uh you know to to get a chance to spend some time and you know just plus you know being there and the palm trees all the time i you know i loved being out there uh now, so so it was you know it was pretty exciting now in those early days and, and through the career did you just instinctually know when to put keyboard in? Because as I said, it, and it's different. You know, the, you have different sounds. It's just not like 
Procol Harum, you know, whiter shades of pale. Ooh, no, you, you brought in different sounds and landscapes. How, first of all, how did you find out about all these sounds? And then what made you sit there and go, okay, I can go. I mean, what was it just yeah. instinct? Yeah, I, I, I think so. I was, I was, I had been drawn to synthesizer. I don't know. I one of my favorite bands right before, as the Cars were starting, was Devo. So they they were an inspiration for me, and and also just the way that the Beatles used keyboards in their songs. Uh, you know, especially things like Strawberry Fields. I love, you know, I love those. Mellotron, fluty things, but but even in their arrangements, I I always liked and and noticed, you know, in their arrangements, a lot on a lot of their songs. You know, they're mainly a guitar band, but then a a piano would come in for a part, and then it would disappear, and and then you know it might you know it might just be there in the bridges. And then not be in there anywhere else, and so that whole sort of approach shaped my approach with the cars. And also, when we were first, when the cars were first rehearsing and working on those arrangements, one of the things we used to do, and I didn't always like doing it, uh, was was to make a cassette of the rehearsal. And then go home and like listen to it, and and a lot of the times I go ah that doesn't sound very good, <laughs> and and uh, but the more I would listen to it, the more I think I learned to simplify, and 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 sort of learn to self edit, and 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 I would think you know just listen to something and think well gee you know you, you don't even need keyboards in the verse. Or, you know, and I'll just wait till the chorus and come in in the chorus. Or or if there is something in the verse, I'll use a different sound for the chorus. And and then it also, Elliot and I worked together uh, just as far as placement uh, between keyboard and guitar parts, uh, which, which we also... Uh, got help from working with Roy on that first album with uh where where you would think okay you've got this vocal part in the verse maybe we'll maybe I'll add a a little keyboard in between the vocal bits and then you listen and you go oh there's already a guitar part there okay i it doesn't need a keyboard part or or you know and then sometimes Elliot and I would get together and do little keyboard and guitar harmonies on things we would do that like on don't you stop we did a couple like little lines and and we do that occasionally where you know oh you're playing that let's you know let's work out something together where that and and we would sort of you know bounce ideas off each other so okay if i'm doing the keyboard thing here and then the guitar does this here you know, you just learn how to, you know, build the song without it being overly busy. Now, at what point do you guys become the headliner? Is it after Candy O? Because, you know, you go from opener, the big, first album, you, you're, all your albums were successful. At what point did you become headliners? And is that a little intimidating? Because then you're like, well, we got to do more time. 
you know, yeah, the people yeah. are coming to see us. Like, if you go and some people don't know you and you blow them off the stage, people are going to go, oh, man, that opening band, the Cars, I could go buy their album. They're great. But if you go up and you have to have an off-show, people are go, you know, and you know how performers. I, I did a show. In fact, I did a show at City Winery a few months ago and people came to see the comedy. And I'm like, some people I knew from the business world. And I'm like, if I suck, they're going to be like, man, what's wrong with Steve? He said he was funny. But what was it like? When did you guys start headlining? What was that level? Yeah, it, it, I think the first Cars tour, so it was after Candio. Uh, for the first album, like I said, we did a combination of we would play at clubs as headliners, you know, small venues, uh, or we would do these opening, uh, you know, a lot of opening acts or, or you know, opening uh, slots. And uh, so it was kind of a combination of the two. And, and then, boy, I can't remember, I can't remember who opened for us uh, uh, that first year. I do remember in 1980, like the Panorama tour, uh, 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 we had the motels opened uh, during the summer uh, for for our summer tour, and that was, I always thought that was a nice kind of double bill. And uh, some of the others, uh, 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 oh yeah, but uh, going back to the first album, we did a few shows with Cheap Trick, the Cars and Cheap Trick. And and they were the headliners because, but uh, but that was I always liked that bill. I thought that was like a nice compatible uh, kind of double bill. And uh, we uh, boy, there were a couple of times where it was like the Cars, Cheap Trick, and Utopia with Todd with Todd Rundgren. Uh, oh, that's a great show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was now now uh, as you guys are playing. Videos start getting big, and you guys yeah. were. It seems like you guys were already ready for the videos because years ago you had decided to be stylistic and wear the mm. same stuff. So I'm sure right. the video, the the video MTV is probably like, oh my god, they already get it. And you had Rick with you know with the hair and the and the glasses, and you know you had Benjamin who was very a great looking guy, you know rock star yeah. image. Um, yep, what yep. was it I like? Know. When he... I always said Ben was the rock star of the group. Yeah, and it's true though he was because he had that yeah, whole look. You know, women were like, "Oh my god!" Yeah. Oh, you know. I know. Uh, I know. But so, what was it like when you guys started doing videos? Was it was it easy for you because you already sort of had that feel? Yeah, it was, and I enjoyed doing it. Uh, it it was a whole other. Especially that one, the one for you might think, uh, you know, with Rick as the fly and, and, and uh, that, that's the one that won the very first MTV video of the year. Uh, and uh, we went, you know, we went to the award thing and we had, we were actually nominated in like, I don't know, five or six different categories, like best, you know, director, best cinema, whatever, cinematography, best whatever, set and design, and we kept losing all night. <laughs> <laughs> and and mainly the thriller. That was that was the one that kept winning all the all the awards until uh at the end for video of the year, surprisingly you might think one. And so uh that was pretty cool. Did you guys have a say in the videos? 
did you guys, I mean, when you, did you have, or did they bring a director and go, he's doing this, here's what he would have, a director would make like a pitch. Like in the case of you might think, uh, it was directed by this guy, Jeff Stein, who had been working with this company called Charlex uh, that had that look, that sort of digital video kind of look. Uh, uh, they had done, strangely enough, they had done a whole series of ads for the National Enquirer, like, you know, people, you know, who wants to know about, you know, oh, people like me, and and it was this funny little animated thing, I guess, that they did in, in the ads that got Jeff Stein's attention, so he came up and he had, like, this little storyboard idea and said, yeah, I'd like to work with these guys from Charlex, you know, to so that we could put Rick's head on a fly. And, and it was all with blue screen and, and, uh, and, and it was just a lot of fun and, and I enjoyed doing it. And then plus on the heartbeat city album, we got to work with, we got to work with Andy Warhol on one, uh, for hello again. So, I mean, just, just the surreal surreality of it to me, you know, like just looking over and going, wow, there's Andy Warhol <laughs> on our set. <laughs> now, I want to ask you about two shows because you're, you're, this is how big you guys were. You both, you played the Us Festival and you played Live Aid. I want to tell you about both those shows because I've talked to people who played both. I know Us was really, really hot. And I know yeah. Live Aid was really, really hot because I watched it on TV from the down at the Jersey Shore, but I grew up right across the bridge from Philadelphia, where I live now. So tell me about both those 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 events because you're. It, but when you play both of them, that puts you in rock and music royalty. I mean, I'm going to say that because a lot of people didn't play both. You guys played both. So yeah. tell me, tell me, how did you get involved with both of them? Yeah, well, boy. Uh... I'm not exactly sure, like, business-wise, how we got, like, onto the Us Festival. But that happened first. The Us Festival, right. chronologically, was earlier. And it was, it was like, a big Steve Wozniak party. I, I guess he sort of financed the whole idea of it. And, in fact, I remember being on stage, and on the, I could look over right on the side of the stage, and there was Steve Wozniak you know, sitting on a chair, you know, back, you know, on the side of the stage watching the bands. And, uh, yeah, I remember uh, Tom Petty played Talking Heads when they first had the big lineup, uh, you know, the expanded lineup. Uh, 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 I think we were play. I think the Kinks were right after us or right before. Or no, yeah, they would have been after us. Uh so yeah, a lot of you know pretty famous bands, and and it was pretty it was pretty surreal just you know seeing this whole like sea of humanity out there, and uh, it was it was pretty wild. How about Live Aid? Because that's the you know everyone says because everyone was there, and I mean, I, I, us 
you know, the US Festival is known, but everybody knows Live Aid. Like, because Live Aid was such a production, it was for such a great cause, and it was in England. And the story, oh, Phil Collins took the Concord over and played both places. And, and everyone remembers, you know, in, in England, it was Queen had that set and everything. What was it like when you guys got to Live Aid? And what is it like to see... Well, you know there's 100,000 people, because I've been to concerts at, at that stadium, JFK, that's now gone. But you also know there's... Is it really? Oh, they ripped that down. They tore that down years ago. And there's a whole all-new conference things there. Yeah, it was crazy. It was so big, but it was archaic when you think about the new stadiums because of benches. And I went to many concerts there. But what is it like I mean, when you're sitting there and you're... Do you know at that moment when you take stage and when you're backstage that you are a part of music history that people remember and, and love i think that was a little more after the fact i i remember sort of at the time just hoping nothing breaks down during our set and i hope we get through these four songs okay without you know without anything major going wrong and uh and and yeah speaking of being hot I remember because we played "Drive" was one of the songs we played, and and you can still hear if if you hear it on you know see it on YouTube or whatever. Uh, David had these like electronic drums, and at some point during "Drive," they just from the heat they just started triggering these random noises, and it was just sort of and and. Uh, you know, like, hey, what's going on? And, you know, uh, you know, not, I don't think it, the, you know, the particular, anybody would notice except, you know, the, the guys in the band, you know, because we're kind of all looking around like, oh, 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 oh what's going on? Uh, because it was, you know, that's, that's the trouble with like electronics and keyboards and if they get too hot, uh, they shut down <laughs> or the, or they or they do random things that you don't want them to do strangely enough it reminds me i i did a show uh with eddie japan uh like it must have been like two summers ago up in new hampshire and it was another really hot day and and i had a i was using my laptop that i have some sounds on that i was using for the show and at sound check my laptop shut down from the heat and so the sound guy said oh put it in the freezer and i'm going what he goes yeah <laughs> put put your laptop in the freezer and so i put it in the freezer for whatever it was half an hour hour you know took it out it worked fine i couldn't believe it <laughs> now that's funny. I, that's a good thing. Now, I'd did you never done that? But that's something I had never heard of before. Did, did you meet any people that really blew you away at Live Aid? Like when backstage, did you meet some people, or what was that like backstage? Oh, uh, you know, I, I, who, I remember hanging out with Paul Schaefer uh, from David Letterman's band, hanging out with him uh, during Madonna's set. Uh, we were sort of backstage, and I forget who he was there with. Uh, but, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, now I'm now I'm blanking out. 
But it's but oh, and speaking of drive, and since you mentioned Phil Collins, that that was the other thing uh, that I remember. Like during Drive, on the broadcast, they cut from the cars to Phil Collins's plane landing at the airport. Since he had just you know landed from doing the London show, and he was he was oh that's right oh it was it was the Led Zeppelin guys were there, because uh, he was playing drums with them. Right? Wasn't that in Philadelphia? Yeah, I think I believe. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he came. I'm pretty sure. I, now I'm now I'm not so sure because well, you know, memory memory is a funny thing. So so you know you guys had all the albums. What what made the cars the end? What was it like? When did you guys did you guys think like back in '87? Was it just something you had conquered? You had conquered everything. I mean, you yeah, you, you were huge. It, it, it was. It was, uh, I think, complacency. I think we had gotten complacent after, like, sort of the success of the Heartbeat City record. Just sort of thinking, oh, our next record will be just as big as that one. Uh, but a lot of time was sort of happened between those two records, between Heartbeat City and Door to Door. Heartbeat City, what came out in, was it 84? Uh, I think 84 and Door to Door didn't come out till 87. And in the meantime, Rick did a, a solo record, This Side of Paradise, which actually I worked on extensively. So in a way, that record for me was almost like the follow-up to Heartbeat City, uh, was the This Side of Paradise uh, Rick record. But then, but it, it, so I don't know. I think it was a combination of Rick starting to think about doing solo career full time as opposed to the cars. Uh, there was, and also a just personality wise, it seemed like he and Rick, I mean, I mean, uh, he and Ben just weren't getting along as you know so well. Uh, and and to this day, I really don't know if there's any like anything that like set it off, or whether it was just sort of a slow little, you know, schism that got wider as time went on, uh, you know. But there was it, 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 and so I think when door to door came out it was not it just wasn't focused it was a particularly unfocused record uh we should have had a an outside producer work with us which we didn't have uh just the material wasn't as uh wasn't as top-notch as the other albums in my opinion uh so it was it was i think you know i think part of it was complacency uh part of it maybe it was probably fatigue uh to a certain degree and i think you know part of it was sort of the other guys in the band kind of feeling like gee you know we're sitting around for two or three years waiting for rick you know, to do the next Cars record, you know, and, you know, some people were getting a little disgruntled, perhaps. 
I got to ask you about real quick. I, I probably forget. I love the song Magic. Okay, I love the video. It always it always reminds me of summer. I swear to God. And I, it's not just because it's probably because of it in the first summer. But but how is it shooting that video? And how did how did did you collaborate and all in that song? Uh, no. I mean, other than I mean, I I did the keyboard parts. But as far as as the basic song, no. Uh, but but yeah, that that one. That that that's one of the videos where actually the band has fairly minimal involvement with. That that was directed by a guy Tim Pope, uh, and I forget who else. What other videos he had done? Oh, he did one for. Boy, was it Talk Talk? I remember one video where he had suspended the whole band upside down when he shot the video. So. And then when he turned the image back up, like everybody's hair is like sticking up because they had, they had been upside down when they had been filmed. And, you know, there was like one of those just like little funny visual, you know, visual jokes, almost like an Ernie Kovacs thing. Uh, you know, uh, I'm sure you, you know, like the Ernie Kovacs tilted oh, yeah. table he would set down his glass but it, it would just slide and fall off the edge because it looked straight but the ta- you know the camera and the table were at an angle so uh so yeah but but i remember we shot that out in la at some guy's big you know kind of house mansion and it had that swimming pool in the backyard and now, after the Cars, you played in different bands, and you know you had the Cars. You got together with Elliot, and you played the new Cars. But how? And you've been a session musician. How did Eddie Japan come up about? Because I, you know, I was sitting there and I saw it pop up. You know, Greg Hawks and Eddie Japan playing the music of the Cars. So how did this all come about? Because as I said, you play session musician. You you played out of the Cars with Elliot and Todd Rundgren. You've gone out and you know you played. But how did this band come about? It's because it's just yeah. it's fascinates me. Yeah, well, well, they were a band unto themselves. They they write their own, you know, original material themselves. And uh, as speaking of small world, I went to this club in in uh, Somerville, the, 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 in Boston, uh, uh, called Johnny D's, which is no longer there. And I went to go see the motels. Because I, you know, I was still friends with Martha and Gerard, who were still in the band, and and uh, so coincidentally, this band Eddie Japan was opening for the Motels, and so afterwards, you know, I went down to say hi to Martha and stuff, and and I met all the guys in Eddie Japan at the same time, and and as it turned out, I actually knew their guitar, one of their guitar players, Eric Brocious who had been in another band from Boston called Tribe uh, that, that also had, you know, local, local, you know, notoriety around Boston. And, and uh, uh, so I knew him from that band. And then I guess he asked me if I was interested in producing any, a couple of songs for Eddie Japan. Uh, they were going to, you know, record some more stuff. So I did, and and it was on a CD of Eddie Japan's called The Golden. I done that with him. And so then when they had like a, 
like a CD release party and, and they played and uh, did a couple shows in Boston. And so they, they just invited me to sit in and, you know, oh, you know, uh, if you want to do, you know, we'll learn a couple of car songs and have you come up. So, so we did, and, you know, I did that and it was fun and it was, you know, it was like, yeah, that was fun. And so then like a few months later, they approached me with the idea of, what do you think if we did a whole set of Cars songs? And which sort of took me back at first. And I really, it, I, I was kind of resistant to the idea, to tell you the truth. Uh, and it took me a while to sort of warm up to the idea. So after, after, after a little cajoling, I sort of said, okay, I'll do one show and, and see how it goes. So, so we did one in Boston and, and it went really well. And, and I had fun doing it and, and they had really done a good job learning the songs. And so just, I thought, okay, you know, let's do a few more shows. And, and it kind of has been, you know, we, uh, just a few shows at a time and, and they really, they do all the work. <laughs> they, they like set, organize rehearsals, say, you know, we're going to, and they book the shows. Uh, so I didn't even have to make any phone calls. Uh, I just kind of have to show up and, and hopefully, you know, remember remember my parts <laughs> I, have, I have two final questions i always ask my guests these because i the answers always fascinate me one tell me a good story that you remember from when the cars were going on like a good story that really sticks out in your memory wow or, or two whatever yeah wow wow uh uh wow wow uh well i I, I don't know if it's so much of a story, but I mean, I do remember the first time that the Cars played in San Francisco. I think it was the Mabuhe Garden, uh, but it was a pretty, you know, it was a club, and 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 Neil Young came to see us. I'm like, wow, Neil Young's here, and that was like sort of the first time I felt like, wow, this, you know there's guys in famous bands coming to see our band and and uh also paul kantner from jefferson airplane came came to see us and he liked us so much that uh he flew down to los angeles which was our next place that we were playing so he could see us again and kind of hung out with us for a couple of days uh we we were all staying at the sunset marquee in in hollywood and and which was sort of the uh it was sort of the rock hotel uh you know for bands to stay at uh i remember one time we were there you know the police were there at the same time and you would just run into other guys and bands and stuff and uh yeah so that would you know just things like that were always pretty exciting for me and finally, when you look back at your career, what what is something that really sticks out to you as a highlight? Something that you're really proud of? Was it the Rock and Roll Hall? Were you happy with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame finally getting inducted? Oh yeah, 
yeah now yeah i am i'm i'm doubly happy uh that it happened i mean i never i was one of those guys i never really watched the show myself and didn't didn't pay attention to it that much i think i watched the first few years you know when they would have like when the beatles were inducted you know and then they would have those jams you know this you know the super jams and stuff at the end of the night and but but i kind of lost interest and wasn't really that interested in you know the award show per se and and didn't really follow it until until we got nominated and then it took us three tries because it took us we were nominated three times before we actually got in and uh but the the thing i really will remember about it was it it was the last time that i saw and talked to rick so uh you know i'll always for me it's like wow what a way to go out you know being inducted to the to the hall of fame you know from the early days and you know you know what a strange you know strange event filled journey it was getting to that point well also but what what are you looking back though when i mean that was something what is something that you really are proud of in your career well the first record particularly uh although i mean the 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 all the all the all the albums through heartbeat city door to door not so much <laughs> uh but uh and 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 then you know here i i i'm always sort of touched when i hear like younger bands mention the cars as one of their influences like weezer you know when when they say oh you know we love the cars or one time i saw an interview with trent reznor from nine inch nails and he said yeah you know i used to really like the cars and the way the way they used keyboards and you know with with rock music and, and i get a sense of fulfillment you know fulfillment from that well, that was awesome, Greg. I really want well, thank you for taking the time. People, go okay. see them November 4th at City Winery. As I said, I performed there a while ago. It's a really cool venue. It's in Philadelphia. If you live in Jersey, take the speed line over. You can walk over. Uh, and now, where can uh, Eddie Japan has a website, and you have a few more shows with them. You play a few shows. Um, where can people find your artwork? Where can we find Betty Cooper and Captain Rufus? It's just on my Facebook page. It's Greg Hawks. I actually, it might be slightly confusing because I have two different Facebook pages. One is my kind of personal one, which is the one that has Betty Cooper and Captain Rufus. But it's, 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 I've set it up so anybody can see it. It's a public, because, uh, and then I have another one, Greg Hawks, but it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's more, I intended to use that just for things sort of related to the cars, but as things as time goes on, I keep forgetting to update it. So that one's probably woefully out of <laughs> out of date. Uh, so if you just hunt Greg Hawks on Facebook, you're bound to come up with some funny cat pictures. So people, please go check them out. Go to my website, coopertalk.net. You can find over 970 episodes. You can email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. Twitter, I'm at coopertalk. 
Remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I'll talk to you next time.